For a lot of manufacturers, their CRM is not only a pain point, but a very expensive mistake because they did not set it up the right way and they're not using it to its fullest potential. We at VanVio do a ton of work to drive leads and bring the right awareness to our clients. And oftentimes those leads get brought into a CRM and they get lost and it becomes a very expensive, unuseful tool, which is why we're really excited to bring on a manufacturer today who launched a CRM unsuccessfully and transitioned to make it a really critical part of their growth from a sales standpoint. They've got a ton of salespeople on their team and they're using their CRM to actually help them scale their sales efforts in multiple different regions and countries. He shares his story from failure to success and how you can learn from the mistakes they've made in integrating and implementing their CRM into their sales efforts. All right, let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Smarter Building Materials Marketing Podcast, helping you find better ways to grow leads, sales, and outperform your competition. And now, here are your hosts, Zach Williams and Beth Popnikoloff. All right, everybody, welcome to Smarter Building Materials Marketing, where we believe your online presence should be your best salesperson. I am Zach Williams, alongside my co-host, Beth Popnikoloff. And we're going to be talking about something that is somewhat of a divisive subject in sales and marketing. We're going to be talking about your CRM today. So we are excited to welcome to the podcast, Gavin Wellington. He is the Regional Manager of Southeast Asia for Armstrong Ceiling Solutions. He's based out of Singapore, on the call from Istanbul, basically your international businessman. And you're from Australia? Yes, from from Sydney, Australia. Gavin has been nice enough to offer insights into how Armstrong Ceilings has handled some of their CRM implementations and is even going to walk us through a bit of what, what to do and what not to do based on his own experiences. So with that, Gavin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So Gavin, to kick us off, why don't you just give our listeners a little bit of background on your history with Armstrong, as well as your experience within the building products arena? Yeah, sure. I guess 20 or 21 years, so I'd probably stop counting now when you get to this stage of life in construction or, or building materials. Most of that is with Armstrong, Armstrong Ceilings business. So my experience is purely commercial building materials, no exposure to residential, but I've had you know so much fun dealing with different types of people right across the industry. And as those of us who know who are in, in building material sales, no two days are the same. And it's quite invigorating dealing with a, an architect and a general contractor and an installer or subcontractor, you know, all in the space of a morning. So good, good sport is, is what it was described to me uh, many, many years ago. And, and so lots of challenges, lots of fun. That's really cool. And so you also oversee, gosh, how many, how many people do you have in your sales force right now, your actual people within your team? I've got 16 in my team. My region is Southeast Asia. So... I've been told there's 28 countries in the region, 10 trading countries. There's six main countries which most people would have heard of, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, Indonesia, and Philippines. They're the core six markets, around about 600 million people. So not, not a bad-sized market, but very diverse, very complex. No two cultures are alike, which, which again, makes it even more challenging. And you throw in my own culture and an admin team in Hong Kong, it's about 10 different backgrounds. So we have a, a good bit of fun. 
I think that's incredible just to hear you talk about that because like I think about the states in the US and you're like, oh, well, we have like this Southeast team that like they manage like Georgia and Virginia and the Carolinas and Florida. And you're like, well, yeah, I do that, but I do it over multiple countries, multiple cultures, and you've got to coordinate all of these different people. Can you talk to us a little bit about the process that you use to be successful in managing Gosh, all of those different people and the different projects that they have going on. Yeah, it was a wonderful learning curve. I think most of us who... <laughs> That's, a good way. That's a great way to say it. That's a good way to say it, yeah. Yeah, a lot of us who travel can consider travel one of the richest learning experiences. And for me, my first week, I got everybody on a conference call and I tried to be the supportive boss and said to everybody on the call, I'm here to work for you. I'll be there to support you. Any questions, anything you need, please let me know. And of course, the phone went dead silent. And what I didn't realize, I actually said to everybody that it translate across in, in that culture as I don't really know what I'm talking about. So it took me some time, probably six months to learn that of walking around and, and meeting everybody and, and saying to everybody, I'll be alongside you and we'll do this together when essentially everybody in my region wanted me to lead the way and show everybody how to do things. So my first performance review was beware of silent acceptance, meaning does everybody understand? Is everything okay? Everything clear? No questions? Great, they understand. So that was the first performance review. So I was told to sort of be a bit more direct and less words and and bit shorter and simpler. And in my second performance review, I was told maybe get out of the bulldozer a little bit and be a bit more dental, dental, a bit more softly. So it is good fun, but the tricky part for me is when I have to communicate a message, I have to stop and think about how I'm going to roll it up and present that and then go ahead and deliver. And, you know, someone in Thailand is very different to our team in Indonesia and, again, different in the Philippines. So that's culturally, that was a big challenge for me. The message really is is not dissimilar to, you know, somebody, a, a young, aggressive salesperson working in, in Sydney as I was many, many moons ago. The message is fairly simple, you know, drive specification, create value, work with your Gen Cons, defending a specification, and then work with your installers or distributor partners. And so that message is much the same. It's just the cultural nuances which make that a, a bit of fun and different across each market. That's incredibly challenging. It's interesting. It's obviously not the same scale, but it's really interesting because dealing with manufacturers, they actually have a struggle in how to communicate to the different audiences about the value proposition of their products as it would appeal to the different people in the channel. And that's just what's running through my mind as I'm listening to you talk about how you translate for Thailand versus Indonesia, the same essential message to make sure that you're hitting the things that are going to matter to them and packaging it in a way that's going to resonate with them. It's just a really interesting parallel. And you're having to do all of that, but you've got like multiple, multiple layers and cultures. In yeah, it. it is quite a matrix when you think about it, when you have the, the many yeah. different influences on a project, and then you've got to pick it up and apply different culture to it. There are some, some cheats ways to do that. And I can talk about that for hours. But one particular example is projects, which was uh, built in Vietnam, but designed in Malaysia. And I went along with my local guy there to the appointment with the architect and three architects sat across the table and three Armstrong people sat on the other side of the table, the, the classic standoff. 
and um, <laughs> nobody speaks until I speak generally. And they said to me, okay, present your products. And I said, yeah, no problem. I can do that. I know a lot about ceilings. I could probably talk for about four hours, four hours, 15 minutes. If that's okay, I can do that discussion. Or maybe you could tell me a bit about your project. And of course, there's only one right answer to that question. And then all of a sudden, people relaxed and the architect started telling me about some of his challenges and some of his problems. And all of a sudden, we had a productive conversation. So there are some cheats way to do things. I just defer to, you know, I, I throw myself under the bus and show a bit of vulnerability and, you know, put my hands up and say, listen, I'm not sure if I'll offend anybody here, but here's what I think. Or here's, is, is that wrong? And once you, you know, extend an olive branch or show a bit of vulnerability, people like to help and then they jump in and, and then say, no, no, this is what I'm thinking. And then the discussion goes to local language and I just sit there and smile and just, you know, assume that everything's moving down the, down the chain that we, uh, we intended. <laughs> That's cool. You've got a lot of different moving parts with the different projects that you're overseeing, Gavin. Tell us how you're currently using your CRM to actually make you and your team more successful? Yeah, that's a great question. If I could probably go backwards again, another trick of mine with the cultural thing, if I go take a step back before we can go forward, and I think there's probably other people who would have made the same mistake. But when we implemented, when we discussed our CRM, we really didn't engage our sales team. It was a real top-down approach of this is a new initiative and this is the benefits of the business and this is what you'll be doing. And so... Again, in Southeast Asia, you really need to sit down and talk through and explain why a CRM is a good thing and, and get your, your buy-in from your sales team. And so we did make a few errors on that, me personally as well, and I can talk a little bit about that in a minute, how we overcame that. But essentially, I explain it as if I've got a very good memory personally, but in a business perspective, I'm terrible. So I can't afford not to have a CRM because I have my list of architects that I need to call on. I have my list of projects that I need to spec, track and close. And I have my distribution partners I need to keep up with and also my installers. And so I need a CRM to help manage my diary and rely on that. And I don't need a good memory if I've got good information in my CRM. So moving parts, I think, was something that, that you mentioned, Zach, and that's a, a great way of, again, a bit of a vulnerability, saying I'm not very good at organising this and that's why I need a CRM. And generally people can identify with and will understand that and run with that. Yeah, most manufacturers we talk to who are starting to implement a CRM or frankly, if, even if they're using it, for the most part, management and the business, they want the CRM because they want the data. Most salespeople don't enjoy it because it takes them out of selling is what they feel. How are you overcoming that? What are you doing to, to show your team that like, no, this actually makes you more efficient and sell more, even though you may feel like it's bogging you down? Yeah, I mean, that's essentially the, the key question and reminded me of a meme with a skeleton covered in cobwebs fingers on the keyboard and you know, the meme said something like just entering today's work in the CRM, you know, today's salesperson entering data in the CRM, <laughs> you know, Great. which I think most people identify with. It's it's really stick rather than carrot. But what we did is, is, <laughs> is I identified that we were, when we were training our people on CRM, we'd start with, you know, customer cards. You need to update and the customer name, the customer contact details, and you've got a customer card. Then you've got an opportunity and you need to update all the information opportunity and you need to update 
you know, the main contractor or the, the Gen Con, sorry, or the architect. So we started with data entry for the salespeople and we did, you know, two six-hour training sessions and after about 20 minutes you're going to lose salespeople anyway. So what we had to do, we had to reverse it and start at the back end and say this is you're going to walk into a an architect's office, maybe a, a Gensler or a Foster or something or other, and say the last five times we've worked together, you've specified our premium product, and four of those six times it's been flipped by a Gen Con because it's been design construct. Now, wouldn't it be helpful to have that information every time you go and visit you know, an architect or a Gen Con? And of course, everybody says, "Oh, yeah, absolutely. data. Yes, that'd be that'd be helpful. That'd be great." Um, so we 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 work backwards. So what we did is something I don't like to do is I spent a lot of money and I engaged someone from the CRM organisation and paid them to come in and and train us rather than our HR, rather than our sales managers, people who knew the software didn't know our business. That wasn't important. They came in and and ran a full. Um, it was about an eight-hour session on how to use a CRM or what it can do for you and why it can help you, why it can make you more efficient, and why it can save you time. And once we did that, it was like a light bulb moment and, and our sales mm. team said, okay. Uh, and, in, and in my group, we've got – they're pretty tech savvy. They speak multiple languages, so they understand being reasonable communicators on PowerPoint, Excel, those sort of things are valuable, so they're doing that anyway. So that was brilliant. One of the key things for me was – the CRM is also on an app and we've all got smartphones, but you can actually push the microphone button and talk to text to update a customer card or, or a contact. So you could actually, you know, you're on the train or in a taxi or sitting in traffic, which we do seemingly more and more these days. You could type in and say, called in and saw Zach, I'm not ready for ceiling design now, I'll make a call back in three months. And, you know, you get better at that. And that was, I mean, there's no excuse for not, not updating the, the data then. I like that little hack. And you guys are using Salesforce. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, we, we are. Yeah, we love it. You like it? I do. I love the data. I love the the forecasting tool. There is so much we could get out of it. But at the moment, we're just still building data and getting a good history, good contacts. But we use it right across the organization now. And how long have you been using this CRM? Like when you first you know, had that training to where we are currently, how long has it been? The second lot of training was March of last year where I engaged this Salesforce facilitator. So we've been going about 18 months with the newer training. We've probably had the CRM, I'd say, three years now. Um, and the, okay. fir- the first 18 months were just a waste of time, absolute waste of time. I imagine a lot of our listeners can relate to that. And I'm just yeah. I'm asking about time frame because, you know, Getting your entire team on board to use it versus like bringing somebody in new who maybe came in six months ago is a completely different scenario. You know, for someone that comes in new tomorrow, is your training process different for them? Are you having them shadow somebody or how are you getting them up to speed with how you like to use and have your team implement the serum within their sales efforts? Uh, good question. And when I do interview or I or I network and try and meet potential people for the business, I definitely ask them what their experience is with Salesforce itself. It's a key part. It does save a lot of time. We developed our own internal training program, which was what we rolled out initially, which was the, the data entry first type thing. And then after we engaged the Salesforce educator or instructor, we also developed some material for them. So we have this hybrid and our package was about 120 slides. The facilitator from Salesforce had about 20. 
So we try and get it down to eight or 10 or 12 or something, something simple. And what I do is I create a bit of competition amongst the team. So if I've got one particular person who's doing well and is a bit of a pioneer and, you know, actually points out some shortcuts to myself and others, um, I'll highlight that and I'll encourage the team to share that. So generally salespeople are reasonably competitive. If somebody gets a mention for doing something quite well during a conference call or during a sales meeting, I guarantee the next morning they'll get a call to say, hey, how did you do that? How did you export everything so quickly from your contacts to your projects? And so you infect people with the, the virus and they start to feed off each other. Aside from that, our product is quite technical. So we have a what we call a basic training program and we'll use Salesforce in a part of that basic training as well. You mentioned a bit that you love the data you're getting from your CRM. Can you tell us a bit about the data you've been able to gather or what you're learning about your pipeline? Yeah, great question. What I'm finding is it's, you know, I, I like to, when we have people managing a market or managing a territory, I use terms like you need to know which levers to push. If you've got a, a number you need to achieve for the year, a sales number, call it a million dollars, you have a look at your business over the, or your territory over the past couple of years, and you, you're generally going to get a couple of core products, which will make up might be 40, might be 60, might be 80% of your sales target. And as a salesperson, you can sit back, you know, get yourself a nice coffee and think, okay, how am I going to achieve this big number in the next month or the next quarter of the next year? Where am I going with my sales plan? And do I have enough of the big rocks, you know, the, the, the core product? And I can start chasing some of the other specialty and boutique. So I like that that's what it does for each particular salesperson. It gives them a little bit of analysis rather than just going back to the world, finding another opportunity, keep going and keep going. It, it helps people to be a bit more strategic. For myself, I like to grade the specifications and, you know, a, a generic specification is um, strong ceiling or equivalent. It's something a bit more, it's going to be a bit more challenging for a competitor to, to flip, might have a better description or a better product. And so when we record a specification in Salesforce, I got clear line of sight on, on how we're specifying, why we're specifying, what are the key attributes we're using. So I can understand who's running around looking at generic specs and not really focusing, not really being strategic, trying to promote some core products. And I can look at who amongst the team is really targeting the projects well, using the right products for the right application and really developing solutions. The other information I love is understanding programming. And of course, in, in commercial selling sense, when you're specifying for office or hotel or you know, schools, universities, it can be a long-term sell, it can be a two-year sell. So the, the hard work you're doing today is not going to ship until, you know, Q2 or Q3 2020. So you can start to fill out a bit of a pipeline. And once you've got some good data in there and you know you've got a success rate of 50% or 70%, you can start to work out what your sales might be, you know, coming in the next 12 months. So, so that's something that I look at every morning, to be honest. First thing I look at. That's really incredible. What I like is that you're able to deliver on the value for both the sales team. Like you mentioned, they're able to go in and have very educated conversations when they do calls at Gensler or other architecture firms. And at the same time, the management is getting the insight into projected sales and even who's really following up and getting those quality specs, like you're mentioning, knowing that the higher the quality spec, the more likely you are to end up in the eventual 
project. Let me ask you about how you're communicating or enforcing how sales team members use their CRM. Because we know you even mentioned like the first 18 months of having Salesforce wasn't really all that useful compared to the last 18 months, which uh, to Zach's point is probably one of the most relatable statements we've ever had mentioned on the podcast. (laughs) The amount of manufacturers we hear that we ask them, do you have a CRM? And they're like, it basically doesn't matter whether or not that we do. So what's your process look like for internal buy-in and enforcing that they're using it? I know you mentioned a couple of strategies, but I just wanted to hear a bit more. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, culturally, that's a tricky part for me. But as part of the tool, we have a dashboard and it'll have how many, you know, to, to break it down in really simple terms, how many projects or, you know, their opportunities have then become projects, how many opportunities each particular salesperson has. So one person's got 180. Well, that's probably too, way too many. They can't focus on that. But we have an optimum number, whatever that might be. And so I share those analytics every couple of weeks. I've got to do it strategically. I can't shame people all the time. If there's a particularly bad number, I mean, of course, Sales management one-on-one is let's have a discussion. You're very low on opportunities compared to some of these other team. You know, what do we need to do to be able to change that? So it's it's very good data analysis as part of the CRM tool. So when you log in, the home screen basically is how many new projects, um, how many projects closed and closed one, closed lost, your success rate and how many opportunities where you've got a high grade specification. So it's clearly a lot of data and sitting down one-on-one with someone and saying, this is what I look at. This is how I get measured. This is how my boss looks at me. Just to give you some insight, Mr. Territory Manager, and this is how management views the region is is operating. So that's really a fairly simple sort of a way of getting buy-in and, and motivating and engaging some of the sales force is really sharing those that data with them. They all have a similar dashboard so they can see day by day their progress. I remember before I joined Armstrong, I was with an organization called Hilti, a famous manufacturer in, in, in construction, and we would get a daily sales report. So we would have our, you know, our target broken down to almost by the hour so we could tell how we were tracking month to month. And having that real relevant data was incredibly empowering and exciting. So we try to share that as best we can. The trick for us is we have a thing internally we use called rule of 10, and there's potentially 10 different influences on a purchase decision. And that can be hard to reflect in a CRM. If you have a great relationship with an architect and a good strong specification and you do everything right along the way but you don't have the good relationships with the Gen Con, you can have your specification downgraded or even swapped out for for competition and that doesn't really show up in the CRM. That's a tricky thing. So the rule of 10 is is potentially 10 different people and you try and garner as many positive relationships with those 10 people along the way. Nobody's got enough, you know, enough hours in the day to start recording all of that information in, in the CRM. So it's, it's not perfect. Maybe for different construction products or residential, I'm not sure, but that's the, the only tricky part of, of what we do is how we reflect that quality in some of the data that's in CRM. What I really appreciate about your story, Gavin, is you're willing to say, yes, we know we needed it. We basically failed for 18 months and then we got our act together and it's working great. If you had to do it all over again, what would you do differently? And what advice would you give a manufacturer who's listening and saying, man, I either I need to do a CRM more effectively or I need to get off the ground? What would you tell them? What have you learned and what do you want to share? Yeah, okay. Good question. Really simply, I would 
and I think this applies certainly in most Western markets, Australia, US, probably Europe, is the sales team are the most expensive part of the sales force, okay? We could probably have another day, we could talk about website and marketing and all those sorts of things, but we pay our salespeople a lot of money. And I think most people are very, very happy to pay their sales team well and pay bonus. And so I would start by talking to the sales team and saying, listen, you're the future of the business. You're a very important asset. We can't grow without your without strong performance. And we need to work out how we can make you more efficient. And if you ask that to a bunch of salespeople, of course, they're going to, you know, get someone else to do my expense reports, get someone else to do this, get someone else to do that. Well, you know, a virtual PA could be a CRM. And let's have a think about how we can achieve a bit more efficiency from you. And I think Fostering it from that ground up would be the way that I would do it again if I was to, you know, have my time three years ago, rather than say this is what we want to do and this is we know this works and we've we've spent a hundred thousand dollars a year on subscription, so now we've got to make sure we capture that a hundred thousand dollars. I would write that off for the first year. It's going to take a couple of years really to work. I would get it from the ground up, from the from the sales team up. And once you mention CRM or Salesforce or, or other other products to the to the sales team, they'll start looking around and they'll start asking their buddies and finding out what are the better and more user friendly tools. And from there, you can build it upwards, I think, rather than top down. Can you elaborate on that? Like, what, what do you mean by from ground up? Like, what, what does that mean to you? Well, I think you would get the motivation from the sales team initially to say, this is my CRM is a good thing and this is going to help me. If they understand the benefits and they can see the, the big picture before they see every time I go and call on a customer, I've got to type it into the CRM. You've got to you've got to get away from that. Someone once said, if it's not in the CRM, it didn't happen. Meaning, if you went and called on an architect, and you had a great conversation, and you did not put it in the CRM, well, that didn't happen. Well, that for me is completely the wrong way to motivate a salesperson. That's totally demotivating. So, the little hack about uh, which you, which you called it on, you know, talk to text to update a contact. That, those are little hacks and those little tricks, shortcuts. Once the sales team start to understand, there's lots of those about and as managers or business owners, we're going to encourage that. Then I think the sales team will be certainly more interested in engaging. That's awesome. This is just great, Gavin, because I mean, you've not only implemented this, but you have a pretty diverse team. You've got a lot of experience in the space. And, you know, frankly, I don't think any manufacturer we talk to has ever done trying to build out their CRM because to your point... Once you start to get some of that data in front of you and your team, it not only gives you better insights about forecasts, but also drives and becomes a motivator. So I'm super thankful that you came on the show today. So Gavin, if, if someone wants to connect with you or reach out, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, no problem. I'm fairly big on LinkedIn. Most people can find me there. I'm also on Twitter. That's probably the best way to reach out. I've got this policy of never knocking back a contact if somebody wants to reach out because you never know where it goes. So I'm happy to chat further about any of my experience, whether it be the, the cross-culture or the CRM, no problem at all. That's great. Well, awesome. Thank you again for coming on the show. And if, if you want more great content like this, go to venvio.com slash podcast. Until next time, I'm Zach Williams alongside Beth Popniklov. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to Smarter Building Materials Marketing with Zach Williams and Beth Popnikoloff. To get the resources mentioned in this podcast, visit venvio.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening.